Turn in your Bibles to the book of Romans chapter 8. We're continuing a four-week sermon series. We're in the third of four on what I've called the greatest chapter in all the Bible. We'll begin reading in verse 26 in just a minute. About a year ago, a gentleman by the name of Monty Williams, recognize that name? Monty Williams was fired as the head coach of the New Orleans Pelicans right after his team was eliminated from the NBA playoffs. Many people in the world of sports punditry thought that he uh, had done enough to keep his job. It was the first time in four years that the Pelicans, who were notoriously bad, had made the playoffs. Many thought that he got a raw deal. After the news broke, television reporters went to interview him, local television reporters, to interview him about the firing, no doubt hoping for some juicy soundbite, expecting to hear him speak about the gross unfairness of his, of his firing and so forth. He began by saying, I, I thank the organization for giving me the opportunity. I, I thank the fans who have, throughout the last few years, supported me. And, and then here's what he said. He said, I know Romans 8.28 is in my heart. I know Romans 8.28 is is in my heart. All things work out for the people who are called by Jesus. My God has brought me through too much to complain and be bitter about. Nine months later, his wife of 20 years, Ingrid, was driving along on a road in their their hometown in a 40-mile-an-hour speed zone when a car comes careening across the center line doing 92 in a 40 and hits her SUV head-on, and she died. Three of her kids were in the car with her, and they were seriously injured, but they ended up surviving. His wife of, of 20 years... She was only 44 years old. Um, you know, it's one thing to say, I, oh yeah, I, I got Romans 8.28 in my heart after you lose your job. He went on to get rehired as the assistant coach of the Oklahoma City Thunder, who you know, are still in the playoffs right now. And it's one thing to say, I believe in Romans 8.28 when I'm unemployed. But will Romans 8.28 still be in your heart after you've lost the thing which is most precious to you? That's the test. Will you still be believing it after the most, the greatest desolation which could ever occur, occurs in your life? Well, we're in verse 26, as I said already. Let's, let's read this, and I'll just go through it read rather quickly, where it says, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We, we do not know what we ought to pray for, But the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And Paul has already been talking about how we live in a world of groaning, a world which is subject to frustration and decay because of the curse of sin. But here it says that the Spirit intercedes for us through wordless groans. And verse 27, he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, 
because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. Now, I never saw this before, but the connection between verse 28 and 27, we don't know what to pray for, he says. There are times, we talked about it last week, times when we are so overwhelmed with our sorrows and sufferings, we do not even, we have no clue what we should say. But here is what we do know. Note the juxtaposition. We don't know, but here's what we do know. We know in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those who, who God, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Right away, let me tell you some things that Paul is not saying in Romans 8.28. Romans 8.28, he does not say, he does not say that everything which happens to us is good. He does not say that. He does not say everything that happens to us is good because we know cancer is not good. The suicide of a loved one is not good. Parents' divorce is not good. Losing, losing the functioning of your legs through uh, an, accident, an automobile accident is not good. Losing your wife is, is not good. Um, I remember years ago where we had a couple in our church who rightly held to the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. They tenaciously held to the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. And they would say, and and they're right in this, they would say that nothing comes into your life which hasn't first gone across God's desk. (laughs) There's, There's nothing that happens to us in our lives that God hasn't first ordained. And that's true. That's but then they would take it one step further to a place that's not true. And they would say, therefore, what, what it means is everything is good. You think you're experiencing trouble in this life? No, it's, it's good. It's all good. It's like if you just learn how to look at things through this, this certain perspective, that perspective of God's sovereignty, then you're not allowed to call anything bad because it's good. And uh, I'm sorry, but that's not true. Jesus Christ wept over the death of Lazarus. Jesus Christ wept over the impending destruction of the city of Jerusalem. It is not good. Jesus hates it when, when we lose those that, that we love the most. He hates automobile accidents and suicides and rapes. Uh, so it's not teaching that everything is good. Secondly, Romans 8.28 does not say that we will understand exactly all of the, the, the ways God is using the bad things for good. We will not understand all of the ways. And what I notice among us, <laughs> among Christians, is we have this unhealthy tendency to speculate about the specific reasons God is sending some kind of trial and struggle into our lives. And and on the whole, I find that our speculations 
for the specific reasons. Our speculations are, are not that healthy. And for example, have you ever heard somebody say, well, <clears throat> the reason that God gave me cancer is so that I could be a good witness for him at the hospital among the medical staff or, or, or something along those lines. And I'm sorry, but I have an oncologist for a brother-in-law in Missouri. He and his nurses have seen hundreds and hundreds of cases, uh, many of whom were Christian. I really, I doubt that God needs to give a deadly melanoma for, for him to testify to something that they have seen hundreds and hundreds of times before. Now, I understand when you're, when you're hurting terribly, you're going to just grasp at whatever you can find to, to hold on to. But usually, when we try and give the specific reasons for why this happened, what we end up doing is we sound a lot like the world. We give very superficial, saccharine explanations for things that's just like the world, sentimentalities that the world speaks, but we just baptize it in God language. It's not robustly biblical. Now, sometimes we can see quite clearly how God is using our trials and afflictions to produce good in our lives. Sometimes it's 100% obvious. Maybe you learn how to rely upon God in a way that you never would have and never had previously relied upon him. Or you learn how to pray with an earnestness that you'd never prayed, prayed with before. Or maybe you put your hope in eternal things and you find yourself longing for heaven more than you had ever done so before. I mean, yes, that we, sometimes we can see those, those threads and being woven together. But I think it's also possible for us to go for a lifetime, an entire lifetime, and not understand the specific reasons. Do you agree? So he, he doesn't say that everything is good. He doesn't say that every cloud has a silver lining. He doesn't say every terrible thing, if you look at it from the the right perspective, you'll understand the good that is being done. He doesn't say any of that. What then does he say? Verse 28, look carefully. And we know, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For... That three-letter word, little letter word there, for what he's doing next is he's explaining to us what is that purpose. For, this is what God is moving us toward. For those he foreknew, just as a little aside here, whenever the Bible talks about God knowing somebody, he, it always denotes a special relationship. For example, when he speaks about Jeremiah, he says, before, Jeremiah, before I ever formed you in your mother's womb, I knew you, I knew you. Or he says about Israel through the prophet Amos, out of all of the families of the world, you only have I known. So whenever it talks about God knowing somebody, it's not like he just realized, oh, October the 7th, 1975, Brad Cheney is coming into the world. To, to foreknow means to forelove. For those he foreknew, 
he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that the son might be the first of a large family of brothers and sisters. And then if you look in verse 29, you get these big, five big theological words that follow. Foreknowledge, foreordination, or predestination, calling, justification, and glorification. And each of those, bam, 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 those five, all they are doing is showing us what's the purpose of it, of it all. For he is, is bringing all of this to pass so that you might be conformed to the image of the Son. It's hard for me. It's hard for me to preach. Uh, it's so weird as a pastor because I can look out on the room and I see, like I know your stories. It is so weird. I can look at your faces and know what it is, especially some of you, what have you what you have been through. And when I say that everything happens in your life, whether externally good or bad, everything happens for this purpose. I am not saying that glibly. I'm not saying that is like a theological band-aid for you. I'm I'm, I'm saying this is what, what it teaches. Everything that happens in your life is intended to move you towards Christ's likeness. Everything that happens in your life, if you love God and if you cherish God, everything is molding you, is polishing you, is shaping you, is, in, is intended to conform you to the image of the Son of God so that the Son of God would have a lot of brothers and sisters in this world that look like him. And I, I don't mean it glibly, but, but that's the big picture which is in view. And it's, it's funny because it's really, it's nothing more than a restatement of the Garden of Eden that's happening a second time. I mean, remember, at the very outset, God's intent and purpose was to create people in his own likeness, in the image of the Son. And what sin has done is so grossly distorted that image and that likeness that, I mean, in in so many ways we can't even begin to imagine. We, We don't reflect. We don't look like God. But the purpose was always that we would be created in the likeness of God so that we might live in communion with God face to face. And in one day, uh, that will be perfectly restored. But even through the redemption of Christ right now, he, he is restoring that likeness. And he is doing it through predestining evil actions for that ultimate purpose. Now, um... <laughs> Predestination is not a, a popular word in America, is it? Um, predestination doesn't make me feel any better. <laughs> I feel like I'm a puppet. I feel like everything is determined. I, I feel like my if God has predestined it, then my actions don't matter. I feel like that all of it is, is, is set out beforehand. Actually, if you reach that conclusion, what you have done is you have left the biblical doctrine of providence and exchanged it for a pagan notion of fate. And I can't explain to you. I really, I'm not a philosopher. I, I did take philosophy 101. I found it fairly interesting, um, but 
I can't explain to you all of the philosophical implications or how it all works out, but the Bible says that God predestines all things and that you and I still make real, meaningful choices and are morally culpable for those choices. The, the, the two ideas are perfectly compatible. But I, I want you to realize, this isn't an abstract discussion about theoretical theology. His point in saying, you know, the five things of foreknowledge, predestination, calling, justification, and glorification is all so that you might know that God wants to turn you into something incredible. I mean, it's funny that our, we, there's no such thing as a superhero out there that has a big P on his chest that's patient man. <laughs> Compassionate man. But I have seen as a pastor that the things we think, we think that our circumstances, our, our circumstances are really what can harm us and, and hurt us. And uh, No, no, no. There are, are, you know what can really destroy us? It's our character flaws. It's our character flaws. Our character flaws are what really have the potential to, to utterly and truly destroy us. So when he says, I want to recreate you in the likeness of my son, he's saying, I want to give you the incredible patience of my son, the incredible wisdom of my son, the incredible holiness of my son. That's what everything, it does not boggle your mind. I can't believe that God would, would care that much about my sanctification. <laughs> I just, I, really? Everything is pre, predestined so that Jesus would have a large family that looks like him? Really? I love the Bible. <laughs> it's amazing. Okay, I better move on. I'm running. Have you, there's a great short story written by Ray Bradford you might have read before. It's called A Sound of Thunder. Even if you haven't read it, you're probably familiar with the plot line because it's a plot line which has reappeared in many Star Trek episodes or many Twilight Zone episodes. It's the story of time travel. A man for a certain price, will take a paying customer back to the age of the dinosaurs through an illegal time machine. The man's name is Travis, and he runs this business. I won't tell you exactly what's the purpose of the business, but if you pay him a large enough sum of money, uh, he will take you back into the past, and you can do something in the past that I won't tell you about. Uh, So a man comes forward named Eccles, who says, I want to pay the money, and I want to do this. Travis gives him this instruction. He says, when we go back into the past, there is going to be an anti-gravity, a metal pathway that we will walk on, that will hover six inches above the ground so that it will never touch a blade of grass, will never touch anything. And whatever you do, no matter what you do, the most important thing that you do is you stay on the path. Eccles says, well, well, why? What's the significance of... And Travis says, well, suppose suppose we accidentally kill one mouse, one field mouse, a field mice by stepping on it. 
Do you realize what that would do? It means that all of the future families of the families of the families of that one field mouse, when you have stamped it out, uh, stamped it by your foot, you've annihilated uh, a, a billion possible mice. And what about the foxes that'll need those mice to survive? For want of 10 mice, a fox dies. For want of 10 foxes, a lion starves. Eventually, some caveman comes out to hunt for food, but there is no food because you stepped on it. (laughs) So the caveman starves before having any children. From his loins would have come 10 sons, and from their loins, 100 sons, and so on and so on and onward. And he says, do you realize the interconnectedness? You step on a field mouse a million years ago, and you crush the great pyramids of Egypt. They never happen. Rome is, is never established on its seven hills. Washington never crosses the Delaware. There is no United States of America. If you, and so whatever you do, stay on the path. Did he? <laughs> of course not, because you wouldn't have a good story otherwise. His curiosity gets to him, and he steps off the path, ends up crushing a butterfly, and everything is changed. As I said, you may have never heard this, the short story, A Sound of Thunder, before, but you're familiar with that plot because it's so common in sci-fi genre. Did you realize? I, I was amazed when I thought about this. It so closely coheres to the Christian doctrine of providence. See, we believe that everything really is interconnected, and everything really is governed by God himself. We say things like this in our circles, that there's not a maverick molecule in all of the universe. Have you heard that before? That there's not a single second of time along the time continuum that that God says, whoops, about, that he didn't realize uh, that it was going to happen. There's not a butterfly out there that... uh, that he doesn't know about. And there's millions of different ways that all of these things are interconnected and he is in control of them all. And the the reason we can be 100% assured that we will begin to look like Jesus Christ is because that is what God is, is funneling everything in our lives to produce. Three very quick applications I want to make of the passage. Number one, quickly, how do we teach this to our children? If you're not able to take complex theological ideas and pass it along to your four-year-old, then you probably don't understand it. And we see that with Jesus. Jesus had an uncanny ability to take complex theology and translate it to the least of these how do you teach Romans 8.28 to your four-year-old when her daddy dies in the car accident? Here's what you do. <laughs> this is a sugar cookie recipe that the Cheney family received many uh, years ago. Best sugar cookies that uh, I've ever tasted before. It involves two cups of sugar, two cups of butter, That's a lot of butter. (laughs) Six eggs, 
four teaspoons of vanilla extract, six teaspoons of baking powder, seven cups of flour. A lot of times when a baker is about to to cook their, their cookies, they'll take and put all of the ingredients on the counter in front of them. Well, here's what you do. You invite your child to this experiment. You, you say, what we're going to do today is we're going to eat each of these individual ingredients one by one. You, you, um, you know, dip up a, a big helping of enriched wheat flour <clears throat> and you take the bite and you start coughing immediately. <laughs> Yum, right? Or, you know, your child thinks that they like the taste of vanilla because they eat vanilla ice cream. Let's take a big teaspoon of vanilla extract and see how, how that tastes. Or let's eat some raw eggs or some baking powder. And you ask them, how does this taste? And they say, it's horrible. Then you look them in the eye and you tell them, Right now, this is what our life is like. We're having to eat. Jesus has us eating each of the ingredients one by one. You you know what the end is going to be if we mix it all together perfectly. We put it in the oven and we let it cool. The the end is going to be something delicious. And if you if you think when right now when you're just eating them one by one, if you try to judge the the deliciousness of the cookies before all the rest has happened, then you're going to want to vomit on them. And right now Jesus has us eating them one by one. I, I don't know. Maybe you can think of a better way of describing that it to them, but you need to think of some way. Number two, you and I have absolutely no idea how much bad stuff we actually get shielded from on a daily basis. We, uh, like Wile E. Coyote, how many safes didn't fall on us from the sky? <laughs> how, many, how many cars have we passed on a single line, lane road like Bogus Basin out here? How many headlights have we passed safely all of these times? I, it would be interesting to be able to see inside of our bodies on the microscopic level and watch as the antibodies in our bloodstream fight against the virus that has come in and infected us. How many times have the, the good white blood cell counts I don't know anything about medicine. I'm probably saying there. But how many times have the antibodies won against the virus? How many times have we been protected and and spared? You and I just have no idea how much God is presently doing for us right now. He's the only one that knows. And as I said before, he is doing the most important thing for us. Now, I recognize we wish that he would do it more gently, just conforming us to the image of his son. Like, why can't you do it a little easier, Lord? But he knows even that. And finally, um, number three, you knew I'd come back to the Monty Williams story. What I would recommend you do later today is just type in Monty Williams' eulogy, Type that into Facebook, and you'll, you'll see a seven-minute video 
of the speech that he delivered at Ingrid's funeral. What I want you to do is ask yourself this question. This man who said he had Romans 8.28 in his heart after he lost his job, does he still have Romans 8.28 in his heart after he lost his wife? Because if he does, then, then you would expect to see more of the image of the Son in him than previous. Does this man, as a result, look more like Jesus Christ? And here's what he said in the uh, eulogy. He said, what we've gone through is pretty tough, and, and it's hard, and we want an answer, and we don't always get that answer when we want it. But we can't lose sight of the fact that God loves us, and that's what my life, my wife lived for. That's what I want to try to do, however badly, is exhibit on a daily basis that he loved me so much that he sent his son to die for my sins. The Bible says that Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And America says that there is no Satan. But it's not true. And this will work out. It doesn't mean it's not hard or painful. But what I want you to remember, everybody's praying for me and my family, but let's not forget there, were, there was another family involved in this situation. And that family needs our prayer as well. We have no ill will towards that family. For in my house, we have a sign that says, As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And we cannot serve the Lord if we don't have a heart of forgiveness. Let's not lose sight of what's important. We didn't lose my, my wife. When you lose something, you can't find it again. But I know where to find her. I know exactly where my wife is. And that's not to say I'm not going to miss her. But let's not lose sight of what's important. God is important. And what Jesus Christ did on the cross is important. There are a lot of things we don't understand. We don't know. We don't know how to pray. We don't know all the specific reasons for our sufferings. But this we know. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. Amen.